Where are you leading from? In a society that prioritizes success first, we tend to fall into traps of leading ourselves and others from a place of fear, doubt, and unworthiness. Let's find a new way. I am seeking to inspire and guide leaders, parents, and athletes to unlock the secrets to a fulfilling life that resonates from the heart. Let's embark on this voyage together, where heart-driven leadership becomes the compass for a life well-lived. This is Heart First. I am your host, Ryan Sawyer. Before we get started, I want to let you know about a resource I created for you. It's called Prep Like a Pro. It's going to take you through a mental, an emotional, and nutritional, physical preparation plan to prepare for big moments. So whether you're an athlete or someone who's preparing for a big speech, interview, or anything in your life that really matters to you, go click on this resource I hope it helps. Welcome back to the Integrated Mindset Podcast. Today, we are honored to share with you one of the most influential mentors we have ever worked with and somebody who has legitimately transformed how we parent, how we coach, how we live our daily lives because of the influence of the information she's brought to the table to help us to form our coaching program, Integrated Performance for Leaders. So Stephanie Fay is here with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. And so I'm going to introduce you quickly and then you'll let you share a little bit about what has got you to this point in your life, right? So I'm not going to even attempt to do the whole bio because it's, we even said before we hit record that her bio is exhausting. That's how, <laughs> how uh, educated uh, and uh, thorough and mission oriented and driven this individual is. So she is the host of an incredible podcast called Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. She's a former researcher. She's a neuroscience specialist and educator specializing in habit change and mindset change. She also does neurotechnology training as well. She has worked with uh, a few different uh, companies, a handful of companies, but ones that you might notice are like Google, Stanford, (laughs) even the Department of Defense. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it goes on and on and I want to give a really quick story. I was led to your podcast by another professional and Heidi was, I wasn't yet podcasting, but Heidi was had a podcast and I was like, this information is incredible. It's exactly what I've been looking for to help like pull all the dots that I had connected together. And I said, Heidi, let's just throw a dart in the dark and see like reach out to her and see if she'll be on your podcast. And she said, yes. And I was like, oh my goodness, really? So I was like, so amazed by that. And then I was like, do you mind asking her if she'll like do a consult with me and see if she would potentially work with me? And so in those first like transactions back and forth and getting on the phone, I was like so nervous and so (laughs) excited because I knew what that would mean uh, for our work and the level of confidence that we now have in what we're presenting because legitimately you and I have gone through the program like line by line, slide by slide over the last, it's been about a year, hasn't it? Yeah. 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 So thank you so much for being here. So excited to share you with our community and our audience. And it was love for you to share with us, like what has led you, what (laughs) happened in your life or what has led you (laughs) in your life to where you've been are just so incredibly driven to continue to, uh, you know, to learn, to grow. Thank you. Wow. What a beautiful introduction. Thank you. Um, 
Well, I'll just say, you know, a funny anecdote that comes to mind is, uh, so I'm, I'm in New York. I'm going to grad school at NYU, working in an MRI lab, but testing people's, you know, facial muscles, how they, how their skin conducts electricity, depending on what their internal state is, the narratives they tell, and how that changes how they punish people, things like that, right? So I'm doing all this really amazing work at at NYU, um, but I also needed to fund my schooling a little bit as well. So I ended up doing a lot of nannying. And one day I um, go for an interview for this, this couple, and they are extremely, extremely high positions for um, very well-known magazines, GQ, Condé Nast. And so I go in and uh, so I'm in this giant, you know, corner office and I'm interviewing with, with the father. And uh, he looks at my resume and he says to me, you know, Stephanie, there's one thing I can really tell about you. You're really searching for something, <laughs> <laughs> which was very reflective of all these different things that I've kind of put my hands into. Um, and, you know, you use the word connect the dots. I think that in some ways I've been on this mission to connect the dots as to how, how our past can really be a gift to us, but how it can also really distort what we think of ourselves and how that plays a role in, in a sense, like the value we ended up bringing to the world and the level of safety we feel within ourselves. So anyway, um, you know, I would say that how I got to, let's even just say NYU and studying all that came from first where I was, I was working at the Department of Defense and I was in the realm of intelligence and data analysis kind of stuff. and. Um, I ended up just feeling like I wanted there was I was doing a lot for international security and I ended up feeling like I needed to know more about human behavior. There there just felt something different. I didn't want to just be someone who reacts to crises and these different situations. Why why do they so consistently happen? Like why is there so much volatility in the world? Why is there so much of that? So that kind of just got those wheels turning. And I ended up getting drawn to this program, like through that type of searching, where um, we took high school graduates to different countries around the world. And they were students who were having a hard time in the in the normal classrooms and having a decent amount of behavioral challenges and different even mental health issues. Um, And so we took them first through a program where we did yoga and meditation and mindfulness and journaling and a lot of personal kind of development, how to be an effective communicator, all of that kind of stuff. So first we took them through that understanding nutrition as well and breathing. And then we went to different countries. And in those countries, we uh, invited them to figure out how they wanted to serve other people. Hmm. And that was life changing for me and life changing for all of the people that were involved in that program. And I, you know, I was part of a team and I had a certain number, I think we had 12 students altogether. So I would counsel them, I would coach them like each evening, we would have one on one sessions. And 
you know, they all they all stand out. They all had a transformational or transformative journey there. But I remember one in particular who was he was quite violent. He was aggressive. He had substance abuse issues. He had an extremely traumatic, tragic childhood and was in trouble with the law a lot. And he was someone where, you know, we we had these sessions and through that there there was just I didn't have any training at that point. I was just there and I was just so curious about him and so curious about where all that pain came from and how it was playing a role in his life. And I remember one particular session where he said to me, this is the because of our sessions together, it was the first time he didn't feel like he was broken. It was the first time he felt like there was a reason for his pain and he had a way to express it, but then also channel it into something else. Mm. And that was what he was doing in the communities because they saw this, this big guy who had a lot of aggression. Um, but that aggression started to be used as like a force. It started to be used for action and mobilized action. So he realized it's not something you have to get rid of. He didn't have to get rid of that aspect of his personality. He could integrate it into something that moved outwards out from him. And so that, that was just kind of mind blowing to me in a sense. And I remember thinking like, wow, there was a shift. Like I really, I saw it in his eyes. I saw it in his actions. I saw it in everything about him, how much going from this, idea that he was first of all a victim but also defective into this contributor right and that his past and all that aggression that got built up actually could be a force for good so in my mind I'm a very mechanical kind of thinker I really want to know okay what are the laws of physics involved in this how does this actually work I've always been like that was like that with the Department of Defense and so I remember thinking how how does that mechanically happen? Like, how did he switch like that? How did that mindset shift happen? So that was what drew me to NYU, to New York University, where I started studying things called um, self-directed neuroplasticity. That was back in like 2008. And it was this idea that we can take some type of what you could call mental force, but some kind of process to actually change how we think and and disrupt different patterns, activate new ones, and that it would actually turn into different kind of architectural changes in the brain. So that's really, I mean, that is what got me into the idea of neuroscience and the idea of mindset and how we shift. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from there, it's just been many, many different journeys. But like I was saying with the nannying, that was a really big part of my journey there as well, because what I also started to see, uh, I mean, I've been around kids since I was 10 years old. I was the neighborhood babysitter. I can't believe how much parents trusted me, actually, <laughs> to have like <laughs> a newborn yeah. and two other kids. I was taking care of three kids at a time, like a newborn when I was like 10 years old. Um, but I remember being so fascinated by their behavior. And at NYU, you know, I continued that with my my nannying. And I would just see nannying and research. I did a lot of research in schools, too how much kids' behaviors were affected by the people in the room, affected by how someone responded. So it was just this, uh, another component of that, of thinking about our mindset can also get very affected by 
how people are seeing us and treating us. And um, yeah, so that was a, a big part of, of my, you know, studies and my journey since then. And since then, you know, just have worked with like kind of every age range and group and, you know, like you, like you said, Google and schools and hospitals and, oh, and I, you know, I, I ended up having a, a professor at NYU who was very much, he was studying the brains of monks um, and watching how meditation really affects them. So I ended up staying for several months in different monasteries and working with the monks and being with them. And that was really special for me. And I learned a lot about myself in those. So started to just integrate all of that into my different That's work. a very unique approach too, to have all the science, the background of all that, understanding that piece, and then to be able to sit in and actually see it in action yeah. from, you know, a mindfulness perspective, let's just call it that, right? As, yeah. as, as a monk is practicing. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you just gave me like four different podcast ideas, just in that <laughs> little story introduction. I'm like, okay, well, I want to learn more about this self-directed neuroplasticity. We're going to unpack that, but not right uh-huh. now. Oh my goodness. So, you know, one of the things that I want to just illuminate very quickly that the work that we've done together has led me to a place where there's no question that like doing shadow integration work and understanding our past and like uncovering limiting beliefs and how important that work is to really liberate ourselves to, you know, to be able to step into our power, to have more confidence and show up fully. But I've really recognized like so much of this is just part of the human experience. Like we don't have to condemn it. We don't have to judge it. Right. There's so much I've been freed so much and I've been able to then transfer that into my clients so much. Be like, well, yeah. So you're telling me you're human (laughs) as they're talking about, you know, their desire for wanting something to be different. And, and, you know, there's this lack of meaning in their life and they wish they had more connection. I'm like, Hey, you're talking about the basic human needs. And like, this is how we all are operating. We're all wired. And, and yeah. and to come to this place where you're talking about the story of the of the uh, of the young man who was a bit violent and he realized oh my gosh there's there's not something wrong with me right and it, it, i remember there being a time in my life like clearly there's something wrong with me like i would not be having this dense dark constrictive experience unless there was something wrong with me and then it made me feel even more that way because i couldn't actually point back to an experience in my childhood that would actually make sense of the denseness. Mm-hmm. I didn't have the, the traumatic, you know, childhood mm-hmm. experience. It goes, well, yeah, well I have this. And so it just made it like, Oh, I'm even more of a, right. There's even more guilt involved with that. And so I think this is a narrative that a lot of people unconsciously or consciously are running. It's like, there's something wrong with me. Like, no, you're the, the, the problem. And the, and that I find is that people don't fully understand the human experience mm-hmm. or what it means yeah. to be human. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What you're saying is really powerful. I mean, I think um, when we're feeling like something is wrong with us, what I see happening is there is a, a contrast or clash between either the behavior or situation you are seeing yourself doing or others and a value you have like a preference. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, what we see is there's something wrong with me for feeling this way or being this way is actually just an indicator that there's a contrast occurring Mm. that something doesn't match what you desire or prefer. 
And so what's incredible about that is when we can understand that, then what we can start to do is instead of shining the spotlight on the aspect that's not going according to what we prefer and value, we start to shine it on. So what value is that highlighting for me? Like, what is the preference that it's highlighting for me? That the idea of preference to me is part of the pulse of evolution. The only way we evolve is there has to be a preference. If there was no preference, it would just be everything's fine. So there is no growth. Right. So preference and that clash is the, to me, is the pulse of evolution. So um, go ahead. Oh, I was just, I was just, I'm always trying to like in my own mind, illustrate with some sort of analogy or something, some way to kind of bring it into something tangible for an example for myself. So I'm thinking about somebody who feels like there's something wrong with them because they don't have enough energy going, right? They don't have momentum towards exercising or something like that. So you're saying that what I think I'm hearing, you're saying the the value would be like being healthy or energetic or in motion in some way. And then what's happening is we're focusing all of our attention on I'm lazy. I'm not, you know, I don't have enough energy. Something's wrong with me. And you're saying shifting that beam of awareness over to, of this is a, a value for me. This is something that I desire and want to move towards. Yes. Moving more, yeah. being more healthy, whatever that looks like. And, and how I would also, the, the added layer um, I, I like to bring to that is that, let's say if a person um, is feeling that, that angst that's coming from, you know, I want to have more energy or feel healthy and I'm not doing those things. So not just shining the light on that is a value. That's a preference I have. The only way you could know that's a value or preference is you experienced it once before. And so that can help also a person to recognize like that is something that has played a role in your life at some point. So um, it's not, it's not impossible for you and it's not um, completely what's the word like vacant from your life. You actually, it's, it's known, it's known, it's yeah. known. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's actually a confirmation that you are a invigorated and a, a, a being that prefers that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I would say, um, you know, that's still not enough necessarily to make someone want to do the, the new action, but I do think it it helps a lot to reframe it that me feeling bad about this is not wrong. It's actually just highlighting that I care about it. And right. then you can go into how how else do I show that I care about it? How how do I have little micro moments of caring about this? Right. And that I feel like can then um, activate new circuits as well of kind of revealing to oneself that this is just showing me something that I care about yeah, and that that's okay. So mm-hmm. to bring that kind of back to our, our clear um, mission that we're on now is really, we've seen the importance and through working with you and understanding, Hey, you know, our, our initial goal was I want to impact youth, right? When we started going, okay, well to impact youth, we recognize that it actually is more important to impact the environment, which is parents, teachers, right? And so really we're honing this in to say, as a parent, 
is there a parent out there who doesn't say like, Ooh, I wish I was doing a better job or am I doing this right? Or I screw this up or am I screwing them up or whatever it is? I mean, it's constant. It's a constant evaluation of yourself feeling like you've missed the mark. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if there's any other area of my life where I have uh, evaluated myself more, wanted to do better. I mean, or if I did miss a mark that it really hurt to miss that mark, you know, uh, mm-hmm. It's not even comparable to business or to anything else, right? And the beautiful thing that what we're talking about here is just to, to define the gap between the version of us that we are currently being based upon our current neurological infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm. And how we relate ourselves <laughs> to the world and the version of ourselves that we see as possible or that we know as possible or unconsciously know as possible, right? And so here's the gap. And I think so many times that we live in the world of problems rather than the world of solutions. We we live in the world of effect rather than the world of cause, right? And to be able to shift that beam of awareness, to understand that, you know, this is just the version of ourselves we want to become, right? Maybe we're not there now, but there, and that's, that's always going to be a, a constant journey. And what I want to really hone in on because we could just sit here and have a wonderful conversation. Like what the heck did we just talk about? I'm not sure. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Is I want to hone in on the importance of the individual, the parent, the person who is the leader in within the environment to do that type of work, to be able to recognize that gap and, and to close the importance of closing that gap to be able to model a healthy environment for those of which that person is impacting. Mm-hmm. Right. And because, and we are nowhere near perfect, but because of this work and understanding how we naturally learn and how the individual and how we're impacted by our environment and all these different components of, you know, of neuros of neuroscience that you brought to the table, like it's completely changed how we parent, how we relate to our children, how we communicate with our children, how we communicate with each other. Like it's changed everything. Like it's flipped it completely on its head. And this is where the model don't tell them, show them was, was birthed from because we're like, well, so I want to reel this whole conversation back. That's okay. You guys. Yeah. And I want to start over saying, when I say to you, like, let's, let's have a conversation about the natural learning process of a human being. Right. Because we can sit here and talk about that's a different conversation, like habit change, and, you know, mindset change and focusing on what you do want. That's a whole nother, that's a different. Those are all some components that need to take place within the context of that. But you're saying, how does an individual learn? But yeah, so I, I want to go down to the fundamental level to, to make sure we understand the importance before we go down those paths, which we'll have those conversations in the future. I want to first say, let's build the case to make sure we understand that the important, the, the most important thing we can do as an individual is to do our own work, right? To, to impact those around us. Because I think a lot of times we get caught up in, oh, my kid needs to be a part of this sports team. Oh, he needs to change school. And I'm going to spend $15,000 to put him into this, this private school. That's going to be the answer, you know, because then they're going to be in this different environment and like, and wash all that away and say, based upon what you know and your background, like the most important, Mm -hmm. the number one priority is 
the person who's in charge or that is the largest influence is us as a parent. Would that, would that, would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then so from the, the number of hours that you will be present in the life of child, if, mm-hmm. if that is the case, and also the the very first imprints that happen too. Yeah. yeah. And and just the meaning they place on that relationship, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which yeah. is non-negotiable because of just the neurochemical bonds. Right. And everything that happens. Yeah. yeah. So what their teacher mm-hmm. says, what their coach says, what the those are never going to be as important or how, how their life is being modeled, like how we legitimately live our daily life or our habits, our, our mindset, our behaviors, how we think about ourselves, our self-concept, all of the things. So let's talk about the natural learning process for a minute. Like how does, how do we learn? Mm-hmm. How do we learn as humans? Well, I think your phrase, show them, don't tell them, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Don't tell them. Don't tell them. Show don't them. Tell them. Show them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is is spot on um, because the way we learn is not as verbal as many people instantly think of when they think of learning. So first, there's a lot of different tracks we can go on, um, but I'll, I'll say the first thing I think I want to touch on is when we think of learning. It's important us to think about why we are learning. We are learn everything a human does is basically to achieve homeostasis, to maintain homeostasis and project into the future. Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> We're trying to to, to uh, not. I mean, the law of entropy is there, and we are using energy to defeat the law of entropy, basically. Right. So. That is why we learn. We are learning to survive and then thrive, you could call it. Um, in order to do that, we must be as adaptable, adaptive as possible. So we are a system within many different systems. And for a system to survive and then project into the future, it must be resilient. And with, when we're talking about resilient, we mean have a lot of adaptability, which means the ability to flex according to constantly, constantly, constantly changing circumstances, always. To never be static, to always be flowing, emergent, dynamic, right? So adaptability is, is the name of the game. And that's why we learn. And the fact that we learn is so impressive with humans. It's the thing that really sets us apart from all other species, because most other species um, have a certain amount of programming that's within their DNA, and they won't really stray from that. So uh, one of my favorite speakers on this, on the concept of kind of intelligence and learning is uh, Eliezer Yukowski. And so he talks about how like a beaver will doesn't have to figure out how to build a dam but it will never build anything else. Right. And a bee doesn't have to figure out how to build a hive, but it won't build a dam. <laughs> right. right. Humans, we have to figure it out. We have to figure out how to do things, which is this idea of learning. Mm-hmm. So we have a certain amount of programming within us, but we, we are another speaker. I love is David Deutsch. We are universal constructors. 
So we are capable of adapting and evolving to literally any ecosystem imaginable, which is why we can fly to Mars or the moon. We're capable of doing that. We're capable of doing that because, uh, because of this idea of learning, which is that we don't know how to do something and then we figure out how to do something. Um, but the thing is, is that in terms of uh, how we pass on this kind of knowledge, so when we're born, you know, we don't have a lot of mastery over our environment. We can't, you know, it just isn't there. It slowly starts to come on board as we have feedback with people and, and our environment. You kind of you serve signals out, you get them responded to, and you build off of that. But in terms of like how humans actually learn and how we teach and learn and pass things on, you know, to each other, um, the first instance of that is through the signals that we emit in a sense. So, you know, just going back to my, my lab work at NYU where I talked about our, our facial muscles twitch according to what our internal state is. Our skin conducts electricity, depending on if we are in a sympathetic or parasympathetic mode, it just is. So the very first instances of what we are learning, meaning we are figuring out about our environment, come from things like if your parent is stressed, their skin is conducting electricity in a certain way. They have a certain smell. They have a certain temperature. The tiny little muscles in their face and their shoulders and everywhere are vibrating and twitching in a very specific way. And you are receiving that information about your environment and how to respond to the environment. So that is the first instance of learning, which is exactly what you're talking about, where you are being shown, you're not being told how to react and respond to your environment. So, like so observing to a certain degree, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And so the, and this way of learning is, is the social engagement system, meaning you and I are, are having a conversation and my brain is constantly processing whether or not you are agreeing with me that even right now you're shaking your head saying, yeah, so it makes yeah. me feel safe to continue to talk. Right. Yep. That. And so this information, I'm not obviously consciously processing this. This is an unconscious part of me that's just taking this information and processing it. And then coming back and saying, homeostasis, the way that we relate it is you're either safe or you're not safe. I'm safe. I'm not safe. I'm safe. I'm not safe. Mm -hmm. Right. And then therefore I'm kind of creating how I relate to the world based upon either. Yes, I'm safe or no, I'm not. Yeah. 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 And so we are, so that, that's a, an important topic to talk about as well in terms of learning, which is that we, we start to discover from a young age as well through something called social referencing, what is safe to approach and what we should avoid. And so, yes, there's a physical danger aspect to this. So we, you know, need to avoid running off a cliff and we need to avoid right. running into the street. Right. Um, but this also includes what uh, things like approaching new opportunities mm. or is failure safe is making mm -hmm. a mistake safe or not. And so these are not things that are told to us. These are things where in every micro moment, we are observing the people in our environment and we are picking up on their internal state change according to what has just happened. 
So if a parent is very afraid of their own mistakes, is, is, has a lot of anxiety about looking stupid, about mm-hmm. trying something new and not being good at it. There's a lot of anxiety. All of that is getting emitted at every microsecond to that child through all these different little changes, poor dilation, pupils, skin temperature, all of that, including the more obvious stuff like tone of voice, facial gestures as well. So that is the the social referencing idea is what to approach, what to avoid. And that includes these more abstract ideas of do you introduce yourself to new people? Do you laugh at yourself when you make a mistake? Do you keep trying or do you shrink down? You know, all of those kinds of things. Those are all these signals that we are learning about from the people around us. And generally speaking, our family is the most important in these early years because of the amount of data that gets exchanged constantly. And that amount of data that I'm constantly seeing from the people around me, how they respond to stress, how they respond to things not going their way, um, things like that, all of that, there's so much repetitive data because when you're little, you are not venturing out into the world and looking at how other families react. You don't have that capacity. You only get that network that you have right there. So you are picking up on all their signals and that is feeding into the algorithms and the internal working models that occur in your brain. So every time you see that, you are storing that information as because in terms of social referencing, it's part of our hack. It's part of our mechanism as humans to not have to trial and error all the time. Instead, we say, oh, she avoided that. She's afraid of bumblebees. Oh, okay. So I picked up on that fear response from a bumblebee. I picked up on the all of those micro signals that she sent that that is something to avoid at all costs. I don't have to now experiment with bumblebees. That gets imprinted in a young brain, the implicit memory, procedural memories that gets stored as a program, as an internal working model so that I don't have to experiment with that. So, you know, whether we're talking about bumblebees, uh, not not like looking like you don't have the answers, trying something new, being uncomfortable. These are all these abstract things that we as little kids, we watch to see and we watch, we sense, we absorb all those signals. And then we create our own internal working models as to how to approach or avoid those situations in the future. Yeah. So what do do we make it mean when we uh, quote unquote fall short of a goal? What do we, you know, uh, our money mindset, right? So we watched our dad, you know, get frustrated and punch the table at the end of the month, at the end of the single month when he's realizing that the checking account is empty. So then there's yep. not enough. I mean, yep. you can relate it to absolutely, absolutely. everything. everything. Yeah. And a huge part about what you just said there is we will also, what we're also picking up on through all of these micro movements is he pounds the fist on the table, gets angry, totally fine. Is there now a new behavior that gets implemented though? Right. Meaning like a different action to create exactly. a result rather than yes. a learned helplessness of saying exactly like, this is just the way it is. Yeah. There's not enough. That's and right. It'll never be enough. Yeah. yeah. So are we watching repetition despite there are mistakes? So mistakes are not the end all if we make it, but they are always a learning opportunity to experiment with a new strategy. So that's the other massive, massive component of what is really important for resilience in humans is uh, flexibility, 
what you could call regulatory flexibility, which is the a huge repertoire of strategies of how do you achieve homeostasis, so achieve your desired internal state, and extract information from the environment. So flexibility, the largest repertoire that you have to choose from at every moment, which ones work, which ones don't. And then another very important component of that is called feedback responsiveness, which is the ability to uh, see if a strategy is working or not, acknowledge if it's working or not, and then the willingness to adopt a new strategy, modify your current one, or completely cease the strategy you have. That, that cycle is regulatory flexibility. It's the mechanism for resilience of all systems, whether you're talking about a thermostat or a city or a human being uh, or a family. So we are also observing that as well in, in the people around us. Are they actually responding to the feedback? So you, let's say, have a, a challenge with money, you get very upset. Okay, so now does a, is there experimentation with a new strategy or not is the other thing right. that we look for. What else can we do differently here? How can we learn from this, right? Yeah. And we're that, that, that's like a, we're going to put a pin in that conversation because that comes back around to like what we consider to be failure. If we don't learn and, and, and grow for something and try something new, then, then that's the only way failure happens right. in, in, in the construct of our lives. Right? It's defeating the purpose of feedback. Of the feedback. So that's yeah. all it is. It's just feedback, right? All feedback. Yeah. yeah. I okay. Think it's so micro feedbacks that you're, that you're talking about these, these small, um, not really even measurable to the naked eye, just kind of happening energetically. And I think about times when I've been somewhere with my daughter, we're walking through a parking lot and I feel tension in my body show up because there's maybe somebody who's, you know, paying extra attention to us or whatever's going on, strangers. Uh, and she will grab my arm and she'll get close to me without a word because she feels the, the yeah. what I'm putting out there. She feels my internal state. So that's, that's interesting. Just yeah. a that's way great. to relate that as well, that they could yeah. so, pick up yeah. as humans on things that we're not even really consciously aware of. Yeah. That's a wonderful lead in Heidi. Cause this is what I was kind of, I wrote down a note. It was like, okay, so we, we think we're in control, right? We as human beings think that we're making all of the decisions and that we're, you know, that we have choice and that we are, you know, deciding how we react to things. And in all reality, there's, you know, it takes a very, very online, very trained mind, very awake and aware human being to be able to shift their beam awareness from an old past conditioning to create a different experience, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what I want to focus on is, Understanding when we talk about homeostasis, we talk about safety, we talk about social referencing, like a lot of our wiring is based in us, the fact that we're tribal, uh, you know, uh, human beings that are better connected and better together. Therefore, like our sense of psychological safety is rooted in, in our social engagement with other people. Right. Yeah. And so much of what we are then unconsciously projecting which is then unconsciously being received by our environment, right? So, okay, that's great. Uh, great information. But I'm sitting over here as a uh, as an uneducated former football coach who, you know, just wants to be a good dad, 
right? I mean, I have a, you know, uh, a regular college degree that has absolutely worthless. And I mean, I'm not educated like you. So that's, 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 that sounds great, Stephanie, but it almost is kind of frustrating because what the hell do I do about it? Mm-hmm. Right. Because if it's unconscious, like, is it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not, mm-hmm. and it's not my fault. I, right. So how do I take responsibility for it? And mm-hmm. how do I make sure that tomorrow the unconscious messages that I'm signaling, sending out as signals to my environment are ones that are more structured, safer, more constructive for my environment than they were today or yesterday. Like, mm-hmm. does that make sense? Cause it's, it's, yeah. it's I am, we we're, we're illuminating the fact that like, Hey, this is all happening unconsciously. Okay. So mm-hmm. like, what do I do about it? Mm-hmm. And not passing on your, your fears and limitations and confidence. And- right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, one of the first steps is, what you were hinting at, which is this idea of what you could call self-awareness. And that is a component of us and it's different kinds of circuits. So we can, I'll talk about it first in terms of how circuits fire. Um, So basically when you're having, let's say an unconscious response to something. So something has happened, like you've made a mistake or you perceived a rejection that may or may not be there and you have a very strong reaction to it. Um, The first step is to not, you're not necessarily going to be able to in the moment of having that strong reaction, be able to do anything about it just yet. So that can come um, with time and training but it's actually more important to do some of this work in a preventative sense. Mm-hmm. And so that will be about, uh, this is where reflection and journaling and uh, setting intentions is incredibly important because for, for us to activate um, circuits that allow us to have more control, which is generally it's in the frontal regions in that prefrontal cortex, that requires us to not be in a state of huge overwhelm and sympathetic activation or whatever that is. So in order to access the circuits that are up there, we do need to be in a state of regulation and safety. And so how you, and by activating those circuits more and more and more, we have higher speed access to them. The more we activate these circuits that allow us to control our impulses, control our reactions, the the more easily activated they become. Mm-hmm. So, exactly. So we need to have time that we we do set aside at, and I would usually say it's the beginning and the end of the day, um, but it doesn't matter. Just time that we set aside where we are intentionally activating that prefrontal cortex, which is the the circuits that allow us to reflect, observe ourselves, witness ourselves, take inventory, think about future, which would be setting intentions, right? So um, that would be the first thing that we have to do. Um, I I don't know if it would really even be possible to just spontaneously know how to control 
in the middle of overwhelm because we just won't have much access to those circuits. Yeah, that that prefrontal cortex, uh, the 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 word that you have used in the past is a control tower. Yeah, that helps me to really make sense of it. Right, this part and and some people have more access to it than others. Yeah. So it's not, it's a part of our brain, but not necessarily working the same for everybody. Yes. And this is something that can be trained. Yes. But it's only going to be trained when you are calm and when you're in homeostasis, therefore you're able to access it and it becomes, it's like a muscle that's mm-hmm. being exercised, right? If you never do mm-hmm. curls, your biceps aren't going to grow, right? Yep. And so we have to do mental curls yep. of a, of witnessing, observing, of noticing the sensations in our body, of letting thoughts pass through, and then eventually some reflective type of work, right? Yep. Which sounds a lot like a mindfulness practice. Sounds a lot yep. like following your breath and, right? I mean, exactly. I'm, I'm kind of plugging our program a little bit here. <laughs> right? Sounds like a lot of everything that we teach is basically teaching people how to understand the human experience. So therefore they're able to come online and train their prefrontal cortex. So they are setting up a model to where there's a different path to go down when the circumstance happens. Because if we don't train it in that controlled environment in the morning, let's say it's a 20 minute morning routine. That's just, you know, Mm -hmm. for instance, right. Then there's really only the, same path we've ever traveled. There is no exits to take off that freeway. You're stuck. You missed the exit and you got to go 10 more miles to take off the next one. Rather than the more that you train this prefrontal cortex and work with it and learn to be this witnessing awareness self in that moment when the disturbance happens, because it's still going to happen. You now have an option to say, oh, I'm going to take this exit and I'm going to have a different result. I'm going to respond in a different way. Therefore, I'm going to teach my environment more adaptability, more resilience. So that individual is going to become able to regulate themselves better, feel more safe, and be able to then project forward into the future Mm -hmm. with more sense of knowing how they're going to be successful, happy, on and on and on and on. I mean, the conversation can go forever, right? I noticed this training, Ryan, that you're doing with our son, and he's been getting ready to go to this unbeatable mind experience. So you guys have been doing, um, ice, you know, regular ice baths, exposing yourself to a stressful situation, and then doing this, training this stress response. And yesterday, remember, he fell down when we were on a walk. Uh, it was incredible. He had no reaction to it because he was able to regulate so quickly. I'm not saying this to be, you know, bragging or anything like that, but it's I'm just, just, it's just facts in it's just action, facts. right? Yep. It is him training his stress response so that when he does fall down, he's able to assess it, look at his elbow and go, okay, I'm okay. We, right. we were we were on a walk and we were fiddling around him and he was like jumping on me and I'm kind of pushing him around. We're just having, we're just being like super playful and he, he kind of tripped his feet up a little bit. He has huge feet. I mean, these things are huge, right? He's a nine-year-old, huge feet. He trips up and he hits hard on his elbow. I mean, hard. You see his face grimace, right? He connects his breath. He exhales. He gets up. He goes, I'm fine. And I was, because I was expecting this, you know, this yep. big old. Yep. Huge. Uh, that, you know, that highlights, um, it highlights the, the meaning making which is the thing that humans do. So it's very unique to humans is the meaning we make of the physiological sensations that are happening in our body. 
Mm-hmm. Like that's really the notion of kind of a narrative which can stir up another storm. So what what we're doing, like when we're training with ice baths or any kind of stress inoculation kind of stuff, is that the the initial physiological change is going to occur when we fall down, when somebody rejects us, like the, mm-hmm. the physiological change is going to occur because there are there's stimulus, you know, there's different frequencies that are occurring and then they stir something up. It's the then when you're talking about getting off that highway or whatever, like there's geography in the brain related to this as well, which is that if there's that physiological fluctuation that happens, if we can um, allow enough time, which is where this training comes in, where before we make the next moves, so I'm going to go like this, where yeah. you get this sensation coming in. There's there's a lot of activation uh, in the the limbic area where there's the amygdala and that has a lot to do with threat and and emotionally charged information. So it's it's going to light up there. There's going to be a lot of activation there. The prefrontal cortex is geographically further away, right? So it's up here. Um, it takes longer to travel, and not everything makes it that makes it that far. Uh, which why we're not we're not conscious of everything that's happening to us. That would be overwhelming. So when we train, when we're constantly training to activate this prefrontal cortex, make new meaning of things, which is where like that, these different circuits are going to fire, then we make that faster. We make it more achievable, like and in a quicker way to get up there. So then when the pain happens or the whatever that physiological sensation happens, because your son was training, for example, with the ice baths, right? And he had accessed that enough times that he had associated new meaning with the pain, which is that it's not going to be forever. This is helping me get stronger. Uh, this is growth. You know, whatever those meanings are. Yeah, this, those too shall, now, this, too shall, this too shall pass, right? I mean, it's whatever. Pass. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So this is not death, right? right. This right. is life enhancing, not life depleting. This is life enhancing is really the essence of the new meaning that's made. So because that has activated enough times, whenever you activate circuits enough times, they become more accessible. They become more easily activated. So as he gets this sensation from the falling, because he's trained enough times, he still had the initial wincing, the initial whatever that is. But that these circuits fired enough times in previous situations that they're now more quickly accessible and firing. So he gets access to them more quickly. And so it's like the brain has just, a, it, but it takes a little bit of time. It has a little bit more exploring to do of, is this life threat or is this life enhancing? Which, right. which one is this? Go ahead, Ellie. Okay. And am I still safe, right? Just yeah. being able to do that quick assessment. Okay, yeah. I'm good. I'm or are people going to, are people even, that, not just the fact that it hurt, but are people going to judge me because I fell down? Mm-hmm. Yeah, social, social the, the social narrative in the limbic system is the oh well, now people think I'm stupid or I'm clumsy. You know, I'm clumsy. You know, and that that's the and I'll be rejected from the trial. I'll be rejected for being clumsy. Yeah. You know, I want to illuminate something. Yeah, he he does d- daily cold showers and the ice baths once a week and those things too. But the yeah, he also will sit still for you know ten minutes and breathe. We do box breathing and you know all these different things too. And it's not a doubt in my mind three months ago when we started this journey, when he just said, he said that he wanted to do all this training. Like this has all been his choice. Okay. Mm-hmm. I have not pushed any of this on him. I mm-hmm. create the environment where it's possible, but then he's like, let's go dad. Three months ago, that wouldn't have been his reaction, which is the legitimate like evidence 
that you can train this. And even at that young age, when that part of his brain is not as developed as yeah. you know, a, a, as an adult. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it, it takes time, but it is yeah. trainable. Absolutely. Which but that's um, also a testament to, you know, his relationship with you and his environment and seeing that you're a person who trains that part of your brain and you, uh, your reactions or your responses to stimulus and how you choose to respond is also like what exactly what we're talking about. What are the kids observing in their environment? They're going to, if they're, they have a parent who's very reactive to every single thing that happens, then they're learning that this is the way to, res- to respond to things is to yeah. react and make this a big situation. Yeah, it's when somebody cuts you off in traffic, or this happens when you stub your toe. I mean, every little thing is this is this is a story, right? And, yeah, that's yeah. really yeah. I think that's a really important point, um, Heidi, because it also is going back to the show them, don't tell them, whatever order you guys say. Don't them. tell them, show them, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Um, which is that? So verbally as well, if we think about kids, but this is people as well, that the way our brain learns is through sensory motor simulation. So um, it is about observing, like, if I say, don't, like, use these words, don't react, uh, don't emotionally react to failure. And I say that with my mouth. The only sensory motor simulation you have received is how does, how did I form the the shape of the words in my mouth. That's the only, so the only thing you can actually now do is emulate saying it. (laughs) Saying it means next to nothing. Exactly. And so all you can do is parrot. And that's what we see happening in schools as well, right? Where we're not letting kids, they need the sensory motor simulation to occur in the brain for it to fire up so that the muscles actually know what to do in that situation. So you can't, tell them to not react in a certain way. They need to see what does it look like when stress, and you can't also have a perfect life and never have anything go wrong. They need to see what does it look like when stress happens? And then, oh, I can observe. Now I'm actually watching how he initially, because likely you also have a flush of whatever that thing is. Oh, I see that. And then I see the change. Okay, that's giving me now the information to create the motor sensory motor simulation within me to inform my body of what to do. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I'm actually just connecting a dot. We were building a squat rack in the garage last week and he, one of the pieces, he hit me in the shin and it was a, you know, a big old heavy, probably 10 pound metal piece and whack right in the shin and, you know, even how I would have reacted years ago is completely different. I was like, ah, right. And then I just kind of, it was over. And he was like, I'm sorry, dad. I'm like, I'm, I'm fine. We're good. Yep. And we just yep. moved on. We didn't make it mean anything. Didn't, there wasn't any extra story. It didn't, it didn't even actually continue to hurt. It hurt. And then it was gone. The pain, did, the pain just dissolved. But I forgot about that until you just said that and then realized, well, that's what was modeled. Right. So we, yep. we imagine a life where, we don't make every little thing that's happening in our life mean anything. Like legit, we don't get caught up in the characters. We don't get caught up in the stories. And we're able to then to bring ourselves to a place where 
we're modeling that to our kids to be able just to let life throw, flow through us. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I wish I had a better way of illustrating the power of doing this type of work because like, even in this conversation, I feel like I'm, I'm still not like screaming it from the top of a mountain. Like I'm at this place where I'm like, listen, are you listening to me? <laughs> you want more for your children? Like learn how to train your prefrontal cortex. Yeah. I think it's also important to recognize that even in the times where we don't do these things perfectly, where we do have a bigger reaction or we respond in this sort of preconditioned way Mm -hmm. that maybe we learn that from our caregivers or, Mm -hmm. or what have you, or just been uh, conditioned into the habit of responding under a certain type of stressful stimulus is to, to still model for our kids what it looks like to take authentic action and to step yeah. back and say, you know what, can I have a redo there? Is mm. You know what, mommy didn't mean to yell at you like that. And I hope you never let anyone yell at you. You don't deserve yeah. that. So yeah, let me redo what just happened there. And it's kind of explained kids are able to understand what's going on. So we shouldn't you know, downplay yeah. their intelligence. They yeah. they deserve to have an explanation, an authentic explanation for what what happens, and it's an, another opportunity for them to learn. So I I want to say this because I know people are listening, going, "Well, I just blew up at my kid an hour ago," or yeah. "I'm just so bad at this." Yeah. Right. So this is something we're talking about training over a period of time and practicing and what we practice, we get good at. And when I worked in customer service and I worked at Nordstrom, Nordstrom's kind of like the gold standard, right? Mm-hmm. You just take whatever the customer's doing, you just take it. <laughs> and they're yeah. always right. Yeah. But I could always tell the person who practiced getting really upset, going mm-hmm. from zero to 60 in like one second, when you said, that you were out of stock in something that they wanted, Mm -hmm. right? And they just Mm -hmm. escalate. So whatever we practice, we get good at. So I just want to say that as an encourage, as a form of encouragement for anybody listening that's thinking, well, I'm so far off from this, is that even when we make a mistake, that's an opportunity for our kids to learn from our mistakes and for us to be vulnerable and authentic with them. Yeah, it makes a thing of compassion. Compassion opens us up to actually then create and shift our beam of awareness. Yeah. Right. I mean, That's, we, yeah. yeah go, ahead. go ahead, Stephanie. Well, you. it's so, it's so important that you said that Heidi, because um, I think what you just now modeled is reality, uh, which is that we do still have reactions to things. We, we haven't uncovered every single wound we've ever had. We have not uncovered every single trigger that's ever existed for us. They are still there. And so by having what you, what you do in that moment, if you blew up at your kid and then you, you know, time is going to pass until you come down again and realize that you did that, mm-hmm. just that the realization of having done it and the vulnerability it takes um, to, and the self-compassion in a sense, mm-hmm. to acknowledge that to someone later is you also all the vibrations of your voice, like the, because that's going to cause a lot of fear inside of you to actually admit that you blew up and go back to somebody to say that 
there's going to be other different um, physiological kind of vibrations that you are going to give off in that moment, which is also you modeling in that moment. This is what it looks like to own up. This is what the physiology, the signals I transmit when I reflect back and I'm still trying and I'm still actually trying. I'm not just saying that's the way I am. Forget it. Yeah. Or shutting off. I'm actually still using and, you know, the, I'm doing this, which is our social engagement system, which you talked about earlier, which is using our actual voice or vocalization or facial gestures. Sometimes it's typing. If you write a letter, that's another way to do it. But you're using this very evolved system to after you've had a blow up, you can go back to the person and use this very sophisticated system we have to create safety again. Yeah. And what you're doing there now, what you're doing is you are modeling that rupture is repairable. That you can repair rupture. And that's a very, very powerful signal to be transmitting to our kids. Yep. That's some because what you're doing there that's very powerful as well is if you do have a certain reaction and then you come back and you still attempt to repair this the situation, which I do believe parents need to do because they are the prefrontal cortex, uh, the ones with the most access to it. It's not up to a kid to do that. To the, the yeah, they're the model, right? They're the, model. They're the yeah. leader. They're the higher uh, in the hierarchy of the family. They're that. So what you're also doing is you're saying that in society, in the world in general, there are going to be things like this that happen, and there is a way to restore afterwards right so it doesn't mean the end of the world when because somebody else is going to yell at them probably at some point maybe online in caps lock (laughs) (laughs) or whatever that is but so you're you're also demonstrating that things are rep i don't know if the word is reparable or repairable but i'm going to say repairable able to able to be repaired and you're able to move forward with it. You know, it makes me think about the preventative work that you said earlier. You said reflective journaling, intention setting. So our ability to say, okay, I said something there that I am not overly proud of or I reacted in a way that was obviously preconditioned. Like this is happening all the time. Like we're human beings, right? I mean, it's that's why compassion, I believe, is legitimately like at the foundation of everything. I've gotten really good at showing myself compassion because mm-hmm. I went from being legitimately the most irritable human being I've ever met to, you know, working on that daily. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, Heidi's speaking to the point of like, okay, I'm, I'm reflecting how, Oh, that's, that's the gap. There's the contrast between who I'm being, who I want to be. Back to our beginning conversation. Yeah. Right, the the beginning of the conversation. I'm trying to bring it back full circle. Right. And then I'm, I'm able to like unpack, you know, that to a certain degree. And then to set an intention going forward to not only repair, but to also like learn from that. So hopefully that becomes my motivator and my compass projecting forward to say, this is who I'm going to be, or at least a step in the direction of this next impact version of myself, higher impact version of myself, right? Which is not preventing it from happening or that it's not preventing the fact that it happened but I'm doing preventative work that it's going to happen again, or at least at the same degree, you know, in the same scenario again. Otherwise, if we don't do that reflective work, if we don't do the the intentional repairing work, then you're going to continue to act out of that conditioned habitual state. And you're going to react in the same way you did before. You're, you know, you're going to reenact the same exact circumstance and it's going to play out. 
if you don't take ownership of it, because I know for myself in the past, before I took ownership of my actions, I would justify and blame and say, well, yeah, you made me mad because you did this. And that really got on my nerves and it was your fault. And so when you don't take ownership and you continue to justify behavior, that's you're not even happy with internally, but you justify it because you're not willing to face it. Wouldn't you say Stephanie, that's just further ingraining the same neurological pattern. Absolutely. You're not creating, um, you know, like a reward system in a sense for a behavior change mm-hmm. because you, when you justify um, you're yeah, you're just creating a narrative that explains cause effect wise mm-hmm. that it was an appropriate reaction. Right. Which teaches that teaches our kids that, yeah, this is just how you, this is how you respond to things exactly. when they're not going your way. And you, yeah, you, kind of, you, you are who you are to a certain degree too, right? As an individual. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and to me, that's um, modeling lack of what humans are capable of, which is that we do have the capacity to modify, adjust our behavior. And I kind of like to think about it that, you know, I worked with a lot of, a lot of families um, with, with the nannying as well, in terms of the parents and the kids that to imagine, even though the child may not be able to say this, but if there is some sort of, you know, blow up of some, some kind, and then the parent goes back and you say, you know, you apologize or whatever that is, there is a part of this system where somebody, so we could say it's the kid, needs to ask, okay, now what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. It's not, <laughs> okay, no problem. Uh-uh, it was a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you created lack of safety. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do about it? But you're saying the kid comes back and says, what are you going to do about it? Well, I'm saying oh, that. I would love it. That right? was actually <laughs> like that would be awesome. Way. <laughs> and my it's, kids, it's, but yeah, my kids. All right, won't. dad, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> right? oh, I yeah. love that ownership. I love yeah. that responsibility. Yeah. They won't. And see, this is the thing that is so tricky with it. They won't because they don't. Well, first of all, I don't think they would have the awareness to be able to do that. But also because of the status of of how you are in a system, I think that most of the time they would be too nervous to do that. But wouldn't it be cool? Like I'm gonna start I'm gonna start teaching my kids. I ask, what, what are you gonna do about it? That, that's gonna be a new. That's gonna be a new <laughs> thing in our house. So it's, we're gonna do a, a podcast called "What Are You Gonna Do About It?" And you can ask that to yourself as a follow up question, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I had this situation. I didn't show up as my best self. I went and I took authentic action. I had a, a opportunity to apologize for it. So now, what am I going to do about it? Yeah. Yeah. You notice the contrast is where we began the whole conversation. You notice the contrast. There's a desire for something to be different. You're not happy with how something is. You don't like, you know, you you feel that you could do better or as a parent, as whatever, 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 right? There's something wrong with me was, I just realized that's what we said. There was something wrong with me, not broken, right? Okay, so what are you going to do about it? That's right. What are you going to do about it? That that question alone, because it's not prescriptive yet, it hasn't defined anything yet. Yeah. It's open-ended. And when you give a question, when you give your brain a problem to solve, it looks for possible solutions. Mm-hmm. But what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe even from a 
We call it a powerful question. Yeah. Yeah. Even we, from a preventative perspective, it's like, okay, maybe the blow up was because your kids were not ready to go when it was time to go. Yeah. And you ask yourself, okay, so what am I going to do about it next time? Yeah. Well, there's certain things like, you know, things you could do to prepare ahead of time, but then there's also that, you know, training your stress response. And so, wow, then the brain goes to all kinds of work to think of all these awesome solutions to not just prevent the actual circumstance that happened from happening again, or, you know, Mm -hmm. lessen Mm -hmm. the chances of that happening, but also then from the perspective of how do I train myself to be able to respond in a way that's in alignment with who I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually just, uh, I think we're probably going to conclude soon, but I, I, that's really important what you just said. And I want to add one piece to that as well, which is pattern recognition. Um, it's always a good idea when we blow, when we, when we have an, a dramatic reaction. So this goes really into, this could be a whole other episode, but I'll just plant seeds for it. When we have a really dramatic reaction to something, generally speaking, if it's very, very, very dramatic and it's not actual life or death, like if I'm yelling at the top of my lungs and it's not because I, I'm trying to actually save a life mm-hmm. then it's inappropriate, it is not matched to the situation, which means that it is likely very embedded with something from a long time ago about us and the meaning we have made about that. Mm-hmm. And so one thing to just plant a seed as well is what are you going to do about it? Um, another question that I really like to have people ask, and this is opens up a whole other thing. So we'll have to do another episode yeah. on this. But, um, how, when have I reacted this way before? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes you, as soon as you launch that question, the brain now has to go into some pattern matching and it can start thinking about things like, oh, it's every time they forget to do that thing. Mm-hmm. Every time they don't pack their lunch. Okay. There's a pattern there. There's meaning you've made about them not doing that. It's every Tuesday, whenever they get home after school, it seems to always be on that Tuesday that they do that thing. Oh, that happens to be right after they had piano lessons with that teacher. Or it's always at lunchtime, low blood sugar, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's like the deeper Freudian kind of stuff that we can think about, but also just the patterns of uh, when we launch those plant those seeds of where is the pattern is there a pattern to this is generally speaking very dramatic reactions i would say almost a hundred percent of the time have a pattern it is not the first time you've dramatically reacted in that way to your child yeah powerful so Mm -hmm. let me uh wrap this up um i know you probably have to get going to stephanie so I uh, just greatly appreciate uh, your time and energy and devotion to to this work and would love to hear from you because this is going to be an ongoing. Yeah, we're going to come back and do multiple other podcasts going forward. So like, you know, this, we could just continue to, it's a, it's an ongoing conversation, but I would love to hear from you. Like what is something that is upfront that you're working on? Just give me a two minute glimpse into your now and future, your now and later. Um, uh, my book. Your book, okay, yeah. So, which is which is? Do you have a name for the book yet? Well, it's very um nerdy oh. sounding, not catchy at all. But it's um the biomechanics of human communication colon <laughs> uh, regulation attachment and systems thinking. So it's how we 
I, I love the idea of communication as a behavioral transmitter, which means we use communication to induce an internal state change and behavior change in other people. Um, but we often are doing it kind of for the wrong reasons because we're mm -hmm. doing it because of past wounds and what we are trying to get them to do that is not necessarily their job to do. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so before I go down a whole other hole with the rat, with, <laughs> with, uh, with the podcast, we'll just we'll just leave it there. So thank you so much, Stephanie. Um, Heidi, do you have one takeaway from yeah. today? Yeah, or, I, and or actionable step. I'm gonna leave it. I'm gonna leave the ball in your court. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna say the takeaway that I hope that people are hearing, listening to this, and something that I heard is just there's so much that is within our control when it comes to the way that we choose to respond to things. And even if we've made mistakes in the past, even if we made a mistake an hour ago, five minutes ago, we can continue to grow. We can continue to train ourselves to show up, to see that contrast and start showing up in a new way from like this moment, this second forward. And I, I feel inspired by that. And I hope that other people are getting that from this conversation too, that uh, this is an ongoing journey, learning what it means to be human and understanding the human experience as a parent and as a leader. And we have a lot of, we have a lot of opportunity to grow and that should excite us as parents. Yeah. So. I mean, just the fact that we're, we're doing our best based upon our past conditioning and we can always be better. Yeah. And that's it. Right. So if anybody's interested in learning more about Stephanie's work, uh, incredible, all the different things that she has to offer, but stephaniefay.com is her website. We'll put it in the show notes and, and she's going to be back again and we're going to have unpack all kinds of, uh, fun topics. So thank you again, Stephanie, for showing up and for being here with us and we'll see you soon. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for your time and attention. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a rating and a review and share it with a friend or someone who you think may benefit. And don't forget to go grab your free resource by heading over to the link in the show notes. We'll see you on the next episode.